When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, let's get to why we're really here. Capital Combat. Uh, This is going to be an interesting topic. This uh, show went down on May 19th, 1990 in Washington, D.C. at the D.C. Armory. And it's most remembered for one thing, RoboCop. Uh, Jim, when I first told you we were going to be covering Capital Combat, what did you think? Did you immediately go to RoboCop, or do you remember this for something else? No, it was was RoboCop. Robocop, without a doubt, and uh, unfortunately, the sad part about that is, uh, other than the, the idea sucked, but the uh, best part that we haven't talked about is that, that that card actually had a lot of real good matches on it, and some really interesting names that, that paired up, and then even more, some interesting finishes, because of the changing of the guard and the booking category, things always got chaotic, and in that, that era of WCW, uh, you know, Calamity and Chaos was the order of the day. Those two C's, not Cash and Creative, Calamity and Chaos was the underscoring mod- motto of, of that era of WCW. And it was a cluster at times. Well, this, uh, this is a, a fun show for someone who grew up on it. You know, I know that everybody looks back at Robocop now and it's a, it's a ha-ha for, you know, all things WCW. But as a kid, I gotta tell you, I thought this was pretty fun. Um, but Meltzer was in on the gag early. Uh, he wrote, The 519 NWA pay-per-view show is going to be interesting. It's a show in which all the advertising is being built around two men, neither of whom will be wrestling on the card. On the surface, it seems as almost as though the show was put together by a comedian. A hair versus hair match between two managers who have almost no hair to begin with. Uh, a lot of people are ticked off about using the actor Peter Weller as RoboCop and what is billed as the main selling point of the show. If you sit down to think about it, it's easy to understand why. While both Zeus and Mr. T were used by Titan Sports on pay-per-view shows, both, at least, were supposed to be human beings. Neither could wrestle. They were thought to be ringers, so to speak. And they were put over to the public as being tougher than most wrestlers. What do you think about the comparison here? to the way maybe the WWF used um, a a Mr. T, and now you guys using RoboCop. Fair comparison? What do you think? What do you make of that? Uh, Same roads traveled, I think. Uh, The the Turner Home Entertainment, who wielded a lot of uh, influence over WCW uh, back in those days, uh, they... They seem to be hell-bent on being wwf light in some of their presentations, including RoboCop. Uh, the RoboCop thing was, you know, the idea was brought to, it was told that we were going to do a RoboCop angle, and RoboCop was going to be there. Peter Weller was never scheduled to be there. He was, of course, a stunt guy was doing that, but who I don't even remember what he looked like. You know, he's he showed up, got his costume on, but when you find out the guy can't go off his feet, he can't make any movements, he can't make contact, uh... You wonder, well, what the hell can he do? Nothing. He can do nothing. And so they tried to uh, smoke and mirror that portion of the show. 
I know that Ole Anderson was a booker at that time, hated it. And so there was not a lot of effort put into the presentation. But in all due respect and, and uh, defense to Ole, what could you have done with a guy in a, in a robot or, you know, a robot suit or whatever the hell? It just didn't make no sense, you know. So, but still, uh, RoboCop was probably more athletic than El Gigante. Talk to me a little bit about how the RoboCop Association came to be. This feels like something that would have gone through Turner Home Entertainment, and now you guys are sort of stuck with it, trying to make chicken salad. Is that about right? Uh-huh. Yeah, you're right on target. The, uh, the idea was is that Turner Home Entertainment had exercised the right or bought the rights for the second RoboCop movie, uh, and uh, I don't know if it was home video or, or for their network or whatever, but they had a relationship and a financial investment in RoboCop. And when we did the RoboCop thing, it was just before the RoboCop 2 movie was going to be released. So that was a thing that Turner Home Entertainment thought of. How can we get him some exposure, get some media stretch to help promote their movie and support our investment in going forward with the RoboCop franchise. So it was just a deal made in a boardroom. It, it lacked a total common sense. You know, it was built around Sting, and who is still on the injured list. Uh, the injured list about another six or eight weeks, I think, around around that uh, after uh, that that event. He was still hurt. And then, uh, then you had the the, uh, the guy in the in the in the cart, the Tin Man, whatever, uh, RoboCop. And so, it was just a ill conceived. And thank God that there were some pretty good matches underneath it, or it would have really sucked. But I, I didn't. I was overwhelmed by the pay per view because. I like the matches that we had. There's some great matches. We'll talk about those. But the, the whole RoboCop presentation, having Court Gordon Sully back there uh, to be the reporter. RoboCop has just turned to the building, and uh, I'm having another gin. You know, that kind of thing. It was just, you just didn't know. What, what, are, you, what are you doing here? So uh, it was a bad idea, and but it was a business idea that, in theory, made sense. Give it a stretch, create a, a, a little personal interest in this deal, maybe people go see the movie. I don't think, I don't know how many movie tickets are sold, but I'm doubting it's over at many. It's just interesting to me the way this all comes together, and it feels like WCW is really just trying whatever. You know, going back a year prior for May of 89, the pay per view there was Wrestle War from Nashville, and you guys really promoted pretty heavily as part of the promotion for that pay per view a performance by the Oak Ridge Boys. Fast forward the following May, and now you've got an actor in a Tin Man costume. Um, in hindsight, you know, was this, you know, I mean, did, could you see something like this happen and think, okay, this is different than any other wrestling company I've been with. This is not going to work. I need to start updating the resume. Or are, are some of the guys sort of excited and think, well, you know, RoboCop's pretty mainstream. Maybe this is good for us. I think most people didn't have a lot of confidence in the, in the idea, uh, even though the movie did, the first RoboCop movie did, did pretty well. Uh, I don't think it was a, you know, a uh, cross-the-board hit. It had its audience, no doubt. Uh, I think most talents on the roster just looked at it much like the, uh, in, the, in the days of the territory when the girls, the women wrestlers would be booked, so you bring four women in, you got to set four men down, and the women were infinitely treated like dirt and disrespected. Uh, the same thing with RoboCop. He's got a place in the top of the card. Uh, he's getting a lot of, a lot of the, the uh, artwork is done about RoboCop, the media, the presentation, uh, all that stuff, RoboCop. So a lot of the guys, I think, are a little bit miffed that their efforts were being somewhat uh, ignored 
and in and, and, and replace of the ten man. So, uh, but you know, we it, it was just a it was just their WW, WCW's continuing effort to think that if we do things like WWE WWF time, then we'll be okay. If we just do something similar to what they're doing, we'll be okay. And all we're doing is trailing and the trailing and trying to imitate. And it was just ridiculous because we had a good crew of wrestlers that could deliver on any given night. But uh, sometimes when you, when you handcuff yourself with a bad gimmick like this was, uh, it was it's hard to overcome. I do want to mention that, you know, we're, we're talking about how, you know, you felt like WCW was booking themselves to be WWF light. But one of the things that has been criticized for decades now is the way the, the main event was booked, the world title was booked. A lot of people think that they were reluctant to pull the trigger on Lex Luger, and as a result, the Flair-Luger feud felt stale. Um, and that's even hypothesized in the Observer that perhaps because that feud on, as a main event attraction had gone a little stale, this would be a way to uh, implement new life, inject new life into the angle, uh, and do something with your now obligated RoboCop. What do you? What's your take on Luger Flair? You know, at this point, should a title change had already happened? Was it too late, or had fans grown tired of it? I think fans have grown tired of. I, I really do. I think the fans have grown tired of it to some degree. A lot of false starts, a lot of uh, non finishes. Uh, you know, Lex was hurt uh, going into that show, and we were probably lucky to even get the match in the ring. Uh, however, we did, and uh, Rick Nates did everything he could to make, the, make it a, a good match. Uh, I just think that that ship had sailed creatively. It seemed like the edge was off of it. And, uh, because the match everybody wanted to see was Sting and Flair. Right. That's what it had been prepared, prepped for. I would have, in hindsight, I would have beat Luger, uh, and I'd played up his injury, uh, because he had surgery like in 24 or 48 hours later. We had a great story built in. It's real, organic. And, uh, you know, well, you know, we can't beat Lex. Why? Why? He hasn't drawn any houses yet. He looks great on the picture. You know, he, he's a, he's got great publicity. He's got great push. You know, Dusty loved him in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, his run was as a, as a, uh, Lex's run as a team member of the Four Horsemen was his greatest uh, placement, I think, because he was around all these guys could make him a better worker. And that's what he needed to do. You know, he had a great body, as good as anybody in the business. An athletic guy, good looking. But, you know, he just, you never seemed to me like Lex never got a feel for the business at that time. It might not have been his biggest focus, I don't know. But I think the creative ship has sailed uh, on that one. And they, people were just waiting on Rick and Sting to, to finally settle their issue. Well, I guess we should mention, you know, Sting was the plan. He's supposed to wrestle Rick at WrestleWar 1990, which would have been February. They set this up on a Clash of the Champions early in the year, a few months prior to the show we're covering now. And Sting has earned a shot at the world title. And when he reveals that he still plans to pursue that shot, even though it's against his fellow horseman, Ric Flair, they kick him out of the group. Uh, so at the end of that show, he's trying to jump on the cage and winds up hurting his knee, has to get surgery. You guys have to do a pivot. We go to Lex Luger, and as a result, the Great American Bash 1990 became the big crowning moment. And I still think so many people look at that show as a really special show because of Sting's win. 
it's almost like it was meant to be because I don't think it would have had the same weight and would have mattered as much had you guys went with staying in February. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. The more you can uh, stink and, you know, cultivate, build the anticipation. The wrestling fans love a couple of things, almost almost uh, universally. Uh, they love surprises. They love surprises, and they also love reality. And the thing that we had set the stage for Sting was the, the first WCW guy to really be made a made man in that company, uh, and he was. Uh, the first superstar that, that was a WCW product, even though he started in Mid South, was Jim Helwig as his as his partner for Cowboy and us, and uh, then you know he's, his run, he, his run with Dusty loved him when when Watts uh, sold to Crockett. Dusty was Dusty was really elated that he got staying because he saw a young athletic guy, good looking, that people loved, just connected with the audience in a natural, organic way, which is the long lasting way. Hell, Sting is still over today. If you advertise Sting to wrestle in a match today, and I'm not advocating that, but uh, even though I saw him at your event, he looked great. You know, he looks yeah. bright-eyed and happy, and he's just a, you know lives in Waxahachie, Texas. I said, "You live in Dick Murdoch's old hometown." He said, "Really?" <laughs> so it's uh, he, he just uh, he was a guy. But uh, the the Luger thing, I thought when Luger that Luger left the Horsemen a little early, and I thought that the longer he stayed with them, the more over he would have gotten. Plus, again, he's in a rolling classroom with those dudes. Uh, what, you, what you can't learn from JJ and, and uh, Rick, of course, and Arnie and, Arnie and Tully, uh, Barry, all those guys who are being around that group, uh, you're, you're in trouble. So I thought he was in a good spot there. And they, again, the company got, uh, found their pants down around their ankles. They have not liked a lot of wrestling today. They didn't do long-term planning. We had no plan B. Sting goes down. No, uh -oh, now what? Well, now what was, well, Luger by default. The uh, the decision to go with Sting here is something that Flair was was criticized for. If you believe the rumor and innuendo, um, Flair refused to drop the belt to Luger because he felt like it had been promised to Sting. Is that the way you remember it? Yeah, absolutely. That whole thing was laid out. We we knew where we were going. It finally, was finally the territory lack of a better term, was being booked with logic. We had a long-term plan centered around our main title. I don't sense that a lot today in today's wrestling where the, the, the main title uh, is your focal point. Uh, and, and I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule. I'm not indicting all wrestling promotions, but bottom line is if you your, 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 your crown jewel, uh, you know, the AEW champion is just going to be created in August. And, but there's a story behind it. There's a long-term plan for it. We know, you know, we know the direction of where we're going is going to happen in Chicago in connection with your event. Uh, so that's a big deal. There's a roadmap. There's a road, there's a, there's a GPS on this thing. Well, a lot of times in, in WCW, because we had so many change, the drivers change so often that the GPS was either used or wasn't used. It's like the old guy taking, us old guys don't want to ask for directions. Oh, I got it. No, I, I figured it out here. I got it. I think I got it. I think I recognize that turn. You know, that kind of shit. So, uh, but that's yeah. I, I think uh, I, I think that the uh, whole idea uh, was planned out well. Rick was loyal to Sting. Sting had learned a lot from Rick. You know, they're friends. And the other thing, quite honestly, Rick knew he would have a much better match with Sting than he would with Lex. And if he's going to drop the belt, which meant the world to him, as it should, to any title holder, it's not a prop that you uh, that you know he wanted it to be a great match. 
And, and, and that, that match would have been a great match, but the one with Luger, not so much. I guess we should mention uh, when Luger steps in at Wrestle War, uh, Luger has Flair in a human torture rack. It looks like he's about to win the championship. Then the Andersons corner staying, who's on crutches. So Luger lets Flair down, goes outside the ring to beat up the Andersons. And in the weeks following the match, uh, it was announced that Lex would get a rematch here at Capital Combat. I feel like for some of our younger listeners, too, we should explain sort of the backstory of RoboCop. Maybe you haven't seen it. Uh, it, It's a movie that comes out in 1987. It's about a police officer, Alex Murphy, who's murdered by a gang of criminals and eventually revived by this new evil corporation as like a superhuman cyborg law enforcer known as RoboCop. It does like $53 at the box office. RoboCop 2 is going to come out just a few weeks after this pay-per-view we're covering today, Capital Combat. It does around $45 million at the box office. And uh, Meltzer would write the connection between the NWA and Orion Pictures is Turner Home Entertainment, of course. They've bought the video rights to RoboCop, and they're allowing the company to promote it. Um, you know, when, when you hear a deal like this is done... Does do you, how do you get the news? Does it come through Oli, or, or how do you find out this is the direction? No, uh, I think heard heard announced that uh, to you know in memo or meeting or whatever. Hey, we're going to do this thing with robot. It was never an option. We were told, hey, if you guys like this idea, we're going to do this thing with RoboCop. Do you think you can figure out something that's viable for him to do <laughs> that can get him over and make him a hero? It wasn't that. It was RoboCop's going to be figured into the main event. At Capital Combat, and uh, and in the story, it was not. Uh, they wasn't like anybody got anything to add. There's no, there's no nothing to add. Here's what we're going to do. So we had to figure out something. And Oli, much like he did when he booked the Black Scorpion, uh, he didn't like the Black Scorpion gimmick, even though it was his, and he did the voice for it because he didn't like working with Rick, and he needed Rick to be the Black Scorpion. So then now Oli, and he didn't, he didn't, Oli didn't react real well to that deal. He's like, you know, what the hell? Come, you know, easy come, easy go. But it was only a major pay-per-view and the angle we've been, we've been using for, or building for weeks. So the, so I think that, uh, Oli's heart wasn't in it. So then when Oli's heart wasn't in it, a lot of the talent says, well, I don't have to try so hard because, you know, this show's a throwaway based on what Oli the Booker says. So some, I think it, just, it took the edge off everybody, but thank God for the professionalism of some of the talents because they deliver some really good matches, but, the match with Luger, it's a matter where you had too many cooks in the kitchen. And you can look at any wrestling product, Conrad, and where there are too many influencers, too many decision makers uh, along the journey, uh, it's, it becomes a real cluster. It really does. And that's kind of where we were with that situation. You know, we, we, had, to, we, had, we had no options. We had to do something with it. But, you know, nobody knew that this guy can't, again, go off his feet. He can't throw a punch. He can't clothesline somebody. He can't do anything. You, you don't know if he's selling or not because he's in a tin can. You don't know if he's happy, he's mad, he's sad, he's pissed, he's scared, you don't know nothing. So, uh, and then of course you got Sting there, you got to protect him. He's still four or five weeks away from returning from that patella injury. They got the clash that you mentioned. And, uh, I remember we spent the, I spent almost, uh, I mean, several hours with him after that show. I think it was in Corpus Christi, as a matter of fact. Uh, and his, this freak deal just blew out his patella, the kneecap. Got all, all unhinged, so had to have surgery for that. So uh, we were caught with our drawers down. Again, no long-term planning, one of the biggest evils in wrestling. It is interesting because, you know, 
Of course, in wrestling, you've talked a lot about the two C's, cash and creative. Well, this creative maybe sucks, but there still had to be some folks who thought, well, now let's just see what it draws. I mean, did you still have any sort of hope that, you know, maybe the content of the show might not be great. Maybe it might not be exactly what you were hoping for or looking for. But if it sells a bunch of pay-per-views, we'll have to do stuff like this again. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. Uh, I, I thought that, look, uh, it's like going out on a blind date. Once you're there, follow through. Don't make a U-turn, hit the car. It, you know, it's, it's just try to try it. And I think that's kind of where we were. We were past the point of no return. So you either can have a boo-boo face and say, I'm not going to, I don't care how it goes. You know, I'm defiant. I'm pissed off. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I felt like, well, let's just try to make the best out of it. And we did. Without question, you did. Let's talk about some of the news and notes uh, heading into this show, because there's a lot going on in the company. Uh, Meltzer would report that the latest revolving door soap opera is Shane Douglas. Uh, he says that during a TV taping in Baton Rouge on April 17th, he had just come back from a knee injury and was scheduled to do a, quote, heart punch job for Mean Mark, and Douglas wanted the finish changed. Supposedly he's willing to put Mark over, but not with the heart punched. And when it was cha- wasn't changed, he quit uh, and was fired, or however you want to call it, and storms out of the building. Uh, Meltzer would write, for all practical purposes, Douglas comes out looking bad in this situation since Mark is being groomed for world title shots. He has to beat underneath guys, which is what Douglas is, and use his hold since they're trying to get over the hold as an ultimate weapon. However, given the precedent set, I can understand Douglas was just trying to get the finish change, so he may have been. So chat me up here. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Do you do you remember Douglas not being happy about losing and walking out here? Uh, yeah, I I've had a long I had a lot of experience with Shane. Uh, Eddie Gilbert was very high on Shane Douglas. I think Eddie's the one that gave Shane his name. Uh, Shane Pittsburgh boy, very very bright guy, still is. Uh, and you know he he was also very highly intelligent, but uh, very headstrong. And uh, he had a, he had his thoughts on how his character should be portrayed. But, you know, somewhere along the way, uh, you, you've got to be a good enough performer to lose to the other guy's finish and not worry about it. I mean, it's, it's just, to me, if you're going to get beat, you want to get beat by the very best thing the guy's got. And uh, plus, notwithstanding the fact this is what the, this is what the office, the company, the people that were paying you have requested that you do, you're being cast in a role. Your role, Shane, is to lose to uh, Mean Mark, who's eventually become The Undertaker. And uh, you would, uh, and you'll do it with his finish, and you know it's just the way it works. But he had issues with that. I thought, I thought he made a, a, a strategic error there, because the word gets out, you know, that about well, he's he was going to work with. And Mark was very highly respected. Uh, we all knew that his the upside for for Mean Mark uh, was uh, unlimited. You didn't find too many guys six ten 
that was that athletic. His basketball playing ability came through. A guy could, you know, the Don Jardine walk the top rope thing, the old spoiler deal was pretty extraordinary too at that, that era. So it, it, it didn't make, it made Shane look bad. And that was unfortunate. You know, uh, he had a, he had a, he had a great look. He finally made it to uh, uh, WWE at Dean Douglas, but there again, I think some of his past discretions didn't play well for him within the creative and some of the power brokers in WWE at that time that were wrestlers. Uh, they made it kind of hard on him, and I didn't. I thought that was dis- disruptive and disrespectful and unnecessary. But maybe some could say, well, he kind of brought on himself, and maybe he did. But uh, I remember the, the funniest story about Shane Douglas Conrad. Uh, he was on the buyout, the Watts Crockett buyout. Uh, he's in the UWF. And uh, uh, Jim Barnett loved him. He was a muscle-up kid, good body, blue eyes, blonde hair. Oh, my God. So, you know, I had this sick idea to tell Barnett that, well, you know, one thing about Shane is all the boys don't like him, Mr. Barnett. Why? Oh, my God, why? I said, because he's, uh, he's endowed like a horse. Oh. And, and they're jealous of him. Oh, my God. How big is it? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh shit! I'm coughing that. It was funny. So Shane, Shane made a mistake there, and then that, and he he he, uh, he shut the bed basically, and uh, it didn't have to. I'm sure if he had to do all over again and go back to those younger days when he was when he was a little impulsive, and he may have been his, hey look, somebody may have been in his ear too. So oh, hey kid, you can't do a job. This guy, you know, you, you know, it's like you're, you're this is stupid. That's stirring somebody up for no reason. That's the same thing the rest are doing to each other now. And they say, well, I made this, that show. How much do you make? They're lying to each other. Both of them are lying. The first liar, like telling fish stories, they got a chance. So, uh, but yeah, he's, he had a lot of ability, had a lot of upside, but he didn't do himself any favors on that occasion. I want to ask you about a memo that Jim Hurd sent out. According to the Observer, uh, Jim's done with no blow, uh, no more low blows. He says that you can't use the uh, guardrail during a match, you can't cuss in the ring, and absolutely no more low blows. Meltzer would comment, these memos are sent down regularly, but usually forgotten the next day. Uh, What can you tell us about these Jim Hurd memos about rule changes and things like that? Well, he goes on a tangent. Mr. Hurd went on a tangent every now and then, you know, and thought he knew more about wrestling than he did. Or he'd have a conversation with, uh, you know, back in the very early days he was there. You know, he might talk to Sam Mutchnick, who probably hadn't watched wrestling in 30 years, who at one time was, you know, the greatest promoter in the country, in the eyes of many. Uh, but Hurd got a wild hair occasionally and, you know, impulsive. He was going to become a booker and, you know, choreographer, producer, whatever. Uh, and the low blow thing was, you know, here's the deal. It, it, it seems like, and you think about today, uh, I think Brock Lesnar's lost more matches as a result of a low blow somewhere along the way than anybody I've known, because that's the only way they could beat him. Is hit him in his balls. Apparently, the wrestling hole won't do. So uh, that was kind of the deal here. A lot of the guys uh, who didn't want to do jobs—not saying that Lesnar does it, because I don't know, don't care. Uh, a lot of guys who didn't want to do the honors would only do it if they could have some sort of really a, a blatant out. Again, not good enough to give your best. Miss something, make a mistake. Other guy capitalizes. He beats you with the best thing he's got. Oh, that won't work for me. Makes you look weak. It is if you're a fake wrestler. If you actually know how to wrestle, you need to make it all work. Make it all work for you. So uh, uh, I'm thinking. 
the low blow was a cheap cop out that's probably overused, but you still would leave it in there. You would take it. You would put it on your on your do not fly zone because when the referee's not looking, it's a great it's a great way of stopping somebody. But you can do it too much, and it becomes redundant. And I think that's kind of what's happening in today's world. But so he did that. The guardrail was, I think, basically a, a result of a either a threatened lawsuit or a complaint by some fans. They were sitting on the front row and sitting near the guardrail, and so when the guardrails were smashed into, they propelled into the crowd or to the front row and could easily hurt somebody. And from my experience with the Cow Palace in New Japan that one night, I can tell you that could happen. So, uh, you know, that was that. But he just, he said, he was impulsive. He wanted to make an in, he wanted to lead the company like a, a Vince Lombardi guy. But, but the difference was Lombardi understood the game of football. And Mr. Hurd did not understand the game of wrestling. Uh, and so we had a lot of, we have, that wasn't the only memo we ever got, I promise you. But, uh, and the guys are roll their eyes. And, and so, and, and I don't know, he even consulted Ole with that information. Only make up the mem- the in- the memo at the same time the rest of us did, and then there you go. So it wasn't smart. It was you know it's just we so many things were done in that era that's, that were not smart. And so it's unfortunate, quite frankly. Let's talk about uh, some contract information that makes the observer. It comes out that Polly dangerously signed a one year deal for a reported hundred and twenty grand. Scott Steiner has also re-signed, but only after the booking committee voted to fire him if he didn't accept the $156,000 offer. And the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette have yet to sign a new deal, although they have agreed to monetary terms, $120K for each of the Express, $156 for Jim Cornette. When, when specifics of contracts like this make the observer, uh, how does the office react to that? to say uh you, you're you're surprised at first because generally uh the town is talking the town is talking i mean i don't think anybody in the county is talking to Meltzer. maybe they are maybe he's more better than than we perceive but nonetheless uh it's surprising that the people would give up that information and, and you wonder why they do it i don't know it's hard to say why they do it maybe their self-esteem thing i don't know uh maybe it's just to trying to sell a point or get more money. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but I remember I remember the meetings we had about Scott. Scott Steiner was hard for some of the agents, the coaches, the producers, whatever you want to call them, to do business with at times. And he was intimidating. So not only was he challenging to do business with some of these cats, they were afraid to, they were afraid to uh, you know, uh, challenge him. So it was just, that was, it was silly. It came down to no communication. And that's what he needed. He needed somebody to communicate with him, and, and, and we weren't doing that on that booking committee. And so the deal was that, that the budgets, were, we, we got a range of money, so you can pay this. At the, the top end of the money on that particular position at that particular time was 156 It's three grand a week. So uh, the thought was three grand a week is a, is, a, is a good offer. Hopefully he can, I think the thoughts were, if he could hit it as a single, which he did, and he, and he could, and he did. Uh, he'll be worth more money at some point for his next contract. So uh, that's kind of how that worked. I, I you know, uh, Paul Lee, I think the booking committee did not want to work with Heyman because they perceived him to be a giant pain in the ass. Uh, I, on the other hand, looked at Heyman as an asset and thought he would be a great partner for me to work with on television. And so we did. And uh, that was his first gig on national television, and which led to amazing success and notoriety. Uh, but he was a natural from the, from the get-go. 
uh, you know, he, he talked too much. It's like I do sometimes, but he, uh, he had it. And once he got himself, he got pulled everything together, collected his thoughts, learned the soundbite game better and learned not to be so abrasive on every time he spoke. You don't have to be a prick. Uh, so, but you know, he was my guy. He was a, Paul was a good guy. I, I had a lot of, uh, fun working with Paul. I learned a lot. I think I hope I taught him some things as well. He, he said that publicly. Uh, but you know, he was my, when I got my DUI there in Atlanta, which I'm not proud of, but you know, full disclosure here, uh, I, uh, uh, I, 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 he was my driver. I couldn't, I lost my driver's license for three months. So for three months, Paul Heyman was my guy. And we got to know each other very well. And uh, that served us, that served our team well. Because I could critique him. I could coach him up. I could share ideas with him. He could ask him with me. Uh, that was good. But we had a nice little group of announcers there at that time. And, and, but Paul had a, Paul was designated and designed for greatness. There's no doubt he was going to be great. It's just he had a very unique way of pissing people off. And as I told him before on more than one occasion, I said, very complimentary. Paul, you're, you're an easy son of a bitch to hate. And he is. And that's the greatest thing you can say about a villain. Whether I hate that guy. Or you know it's fake. Well, I hate that guy. Anyway, I still don't like it. So, uh, but it was a good group. And the, the announcing side wasn't bad. The announcing side was as dysfunctional as the wrestling roster was. Yeah, I want to mention that, you know, you talked a lot about your relationship that you formed with Dangerously. You guys would do Power Hour together. You would work with Cornette on Saturday. You would work with Missy Hyatt on Sunday. Shivani and Teddy Long were doing Worldwide. Lance Russell and the Freebirds would do NWA Pro. And then Bob Cottle and Dallas Page would do Main Event and Syndication. And DDP even did a tryout for another show with Tony Shivani. This is a, a who's who, you know, as far as the yeah. uh, all-time greats. Jim Ross, Tony Shivani, Paulie Dangerously, Jim Cornette, Bob Cottle, Lance Russell... And then a name sort of sticks out, Diamond Dallas Page. We haven't talked a lot about DDP here in, in 1990. What were your impressions of Dallas at the time? Well, he was, uh, I've said this many times, uh, he's probably the most significant overachiever I've ever been around in wrestling. That he, meaning that he has done more with probably less natural wrestling ability as anybody you'll meet. So for him to work main events at major pay-per-views, become a global star, uh, and continue to build that legacy now, this DDP yoga products, which, is, which are pretty amazing, uh, he, he was a great overachiever. But he had a wonderful gift of gab. You know, he'd been in the nightclub business. Uh, he's, a, one of those, he's a Jersey guy. Could, you know, talk and talk and talk. And, uh, and, and it was entertaining in that respect. But he, the thing that separated Dallas, Dallas was, was willing to do anything uh, to stick to anything to become a star, to become somebody of, a, of influence, a player in the business. And, uh, you know, the, because the, the thought was, well, he'll never be a star in wrestling and as a wrestler, but, you know, he's got this great gift to get. Maybe he's a manager. Well, he's pretty tall to be a manager. So that was the theory. 6'3", six, 6'4", six, Dallas is a tall guy. That kind of eliminate from these prime manager slots unless he's going to manage uh, you know mean mark and sit or somebody uh and so that was a good opportunity just you know he was around he was ubiquitous he was there all the time he was always looking for an opportunity something to do he's a popular guy guys liked him and uh you know he's so that was the deal 
But, you know, we also had Gordon Sully in that group. On, this, on the Capital Combat Show, Gordon Sully, as I mentioned earlier, he was on the broadcast team. Bob Cobbles. It was an amazing array of announcers. I was really proud to be working with those cats. And uh, uh, I worked with all of them, you mentioned. But, you know, Cornette, Paul, I had, I had Paul Lee on Friday night, Cornette on Saturday night, and then Mitzi on Sunday. I had a quite the weekends. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, Family Feud. It makes the observer here that Rick Steiner is going to step in and replace Terry Funk as a future guest on Family Feud. And this time it will wound up being post-Steiner Brothers, Road Warrior Animal, Sting, and Lex Luger. But sometime in the future, they sent Sting, Brian Pillman, Z-Man, Brad Armstrong, and yourself to take on the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. What do you remember about your Family Feud experience? Well, I remember that... uh... Brian Pillman and, and Tom Zink never slept. The uh, young, uh, hot guys that were out in, in, in uh, Hollywood chasing. And uh, so that was an all-nighter for them. I remember that on the matchup for the Family Feud, uh, Sting was our first guy up. Uh, I don't remember who all was in the, in the two, three, and four slot, but I was in the fifth slot. I, so I was the last guy to go. And so you normally paired off against the other team's last person to go, and that was uh, Mrs. Stallone. It was like 104 at that time. So I never, she never beat me on the little, when you get the buzzer, you know, you know, I the survey, 100 married men were surveyed, and, you know, whatever, ding. Uh, so the, I did really well in that game <laughs> because I had a little advantage over, like maybe 50 years over uh, Mrs. Stallone, and she just was, <laughs> what well, it was. But anyhow, she, and the funny thing about it, man, she looked like a, a it looked, she looked like uh, Sylvester in drag that got drug out of a, a dryer. She shrunk. She's a shrunken down Sylvester face. I'm talking about. And if he had a, if he was dressed in drag, that's who. His that's amazing family resemblance. But she was she was uh, my uh, adversary, and uh, we won, we did good that in that thing. I had a lot of fun. It was I didn't realize we shot every show in one afternoon. So we did we had, we had a practice round. We got coached up. Uh, they tell you all these little mannerisms they want you to do if you can and all this stuff, but make it look real. Sound like a booker. And so we had our booking meeting for Family Feud. And, but the, we, it, was, it, was, it was a shoot. It was no, you know, it wasn't to put the women over for the sake of, you know, being nice. Uh, it was just a regular contest. And uh, they, everybody's playing for charity. But it was a nice free trip for a couple of days to L.A. Uh, on Ted's, uh, Uncle Ted's uh, dime. And we had a good time out there. Uh, I mean, you know, Brad Armstrong was hilarious. God bless him. And, you know, now Tom Zink's gone. You know, these guys are so vibrant, young, healthy looking, and bright eyed and stuff. They're no longer here. Of course, Brian. So I guess at least Sting and I is the two guys left off that little, uh, excursion. Wow. But we had a good, we had a good thing. Think about, that's what makes this show we're doing here so interesting to me. Cause I knew that we we're going to talk a little bit about the family feud, but I, I didn't stop and think even deeper, Conrad, about, well, five, three of the five are dead, and they're all younger than me. It's just the wrestling business is so strange in that respect. And maybe it's like that every other every other entity, except our group, our little fraternity, is so small that when, it, when deaths or these calamities happen, that we are more aware of it because it's not the word does not travel so far. So, uh, but yeah, I, I had a lot of fun out there. So, uh, our host was Ray Combs. He told us about Bob Barker's bitches, which was kind of a funny story. Huh. That was about the, the all the different women that came through there. Uh, that were, you know, the letter, not letter turner, just Vanna White's deal, but you know, they were the little models on the, yeah. on the show. Yeah, Bob, 
Bob, Bob had a great rapport with his models over the many, hmm. many years. I bet that was an interesting HR uh, scenario because uh, he was the king. Well, so he, the reason it came up, the reason I'm telling you, we were on the same set. And so, and, uh, and a lot of the other hosts, because Barker was making so much more money than them, he had gotten over, he was on top, he was a star baby face, and he was also the booker. And so a lot of the other talents on the shows who didn't have Bob Barker's creative freedom, his hours, and certainly his pay, uh, were a little bit envious. Well, the Road Warriors are envious as well because they're uh, they're thinking they're not going to be re-signing. According to the Observer, their deal's up in December, and it's said that both sides are so far apart on money that it feels like there's a good shot they wind up working Japan pretty regularly since Dave would expect that Titan would have them change their gimmick uh, before agreeing to let them come up. When did you first hear about hey, the Road Warriors aren't happy, and we're probably going to lose them. I mean, this is May, and, you know, we're already talking about their contracts are up in December, and maybe they're not coming back. Well, I think uh, pretty much any time you walk in the locker room during that era, you're going to find, you're going to hear everything, and that was a, the locker room was very open, uh, almost a martial law situation at times. A lot of very strong uh, alpha males in that, uh, in that locker room. Uh, a lot of them had made a lot, made good money. A lot of them had worked on top many, many years, including the Road Warriors. Uh, they were not happy with their money, and they didn't mind who they told. So it wasn't a secret that they were going to look at going, you know, moving on to greener pastures. Uh, and of course, that, at that time, could only mean one thing: they were going to go to work for Vince. And but the, also, the word on the street was they didn't want to change their gimmick to wholeheartedly, but they could be called the the Road Warriors. That's what they became the Legion of Doom in WWF at that time. To, get around the legal BS. But anytime you walk in the locker room and you were then earshot, especially of Hawk, you knew they were not happy. Let's go ahead and talk about an experiment you guys ran. You ran New York City, or at least that area, for the first time in nearly two years on April 26th. You're at the Meadowlands Arena. It was described to Dave Meltzer as good but not great. You drew about 9,500 fans, $130,000 house. Uh, any gate that size is a success for the NWA. Uh, and this is sort of a rolling of the dice because you're going into enemy territory. What do you think about the decision from the NWA to run the New York City area? At some point, if you're a wrestling organization, if you're uh, a Broadway play, if you're a great concert uh, act, uh, et cetera, et cetera, your performer, New York has got to be on your calendar at some point, whether it's this year or next year or 10 years now. you got to play New York City. It's the best of everything, the worst of everything. It's how Vincent Men always described New York City to me. We have the, New York's got the best and the worst of everything, JR. So uh, I thought, why not? I mean, you know, it's WWF at the time was touring. They're, they're playing in territories that, that they did not found. You know, they didn't, they didn't uh, you know, farm, so. Well, either way, you guys have to be encouraged, you know, when you see a number like that, $130,000 house. Let's briefly mention some of the news and notes coming out of that show. Uh, Hawk has an EKG done during his pre-match physical. The commission says it's alarming, so they don't let him wrestle. It becomes Road Warrior Animal versus Butch Reed. Uh, we also had... Uh, a situation where Ricky Morton was supposed to be here, but he winds up missing the show when his 
uh, plane was grounded in Nashville, so he had to take a later flight through Atlanta. And he thought he would make it in time, and he was in New York City, but he got stuck in traffic and totally missed the show. Uh, the main event, Lex Luger and Ric Flair, they go to a DQ, and Ole Anderson interferes. What do you remember about this show? Anything about Ricky Morton or Hawks EKG or the finish? Or Hawks EKG was not a shock because you know he was busting at the seams, uh, and uh, you know Mike was such a he's a, he was really he's a true alpha male man. He was a he's a bad dude, good guy, God Almighty, uh, tough, tough, tough. But he he didn't take good care of himself, and uh, which is obvious. He, he he left us much too early because of that. Uh, so that wasn't a total shocker. It was not good news because they're a huge attraction. And taking that attraction into the New York, New York market was a big deal, and the company needed that attraction. Uh, Ricky had travel issues, uh, as you alluded to. He actually got to New York uh, theoretically in time to make the matches. He got a cab, uh, and uh, the cab, I don't know if the cab driver didn't understand Ricky or Ricky didn't understand him, but I could, I could understand a southern accent talking to somebody that's maybe from, uh, you know, out, out of the country might be a little challenging. But nonetheless, long story short, the cab didn't make it. So Ricky didn't make his match. And so you don't have that. So now all of a sudden, your you're, you're foray, your first foray into New York City, into that marketplace, uh, at least, is that you don't have the Road Warriors or the Rock and Roll Express. And both are advertised prominently, but they're not available. So it started out as a rocky uh, night in that respect. I always thought that we were making a massive mistake uh, with not with Rick not going over. Uh, and again, that was that deal to keep the you know can't beat Lex. Well, you can't have always out there. Are you kidding me? We can't be creative enough to have the, one of the meanest men in the world, this massive heel, Ole Anderson helping the dirtiest player in the game, and both of them together can't figure out a way to beat Lex. we got to do a disqualification. Are you kidding me? We dealt with that a lot. Uh, so that was that was not smart for the brand building. It wasn't smart for the market. And because the fact that you're going to go home with an unsatisfying, kind of un- inconclusive finish, and you're not working a return now. They don't have a return date. So we're not working the uh, DQ so that we can have – we can bring them back in, in three months or two months or whatever in a no DQ match. Nope. That's just, you know, we can't beat Lex. Well, we can't beat Lex if we don't think about how to do it strategically. And it gives him a reason to want to, you know, he, he needs retribution. It gives the heel something to crow about. So, anyway, it was a, it started out as a, you know, uh, kind of a rough start with the towels not showing up. And I remember, uh, I remember vividly walking down the hall. And help, I tried to help promote the, the show, and you know, uh, with Gary uh, Gary Capetta was the ring announcer, I think. Uh, I didn't do any announcing, which was good. And uh, I remember Lex uh, Lex was just taking his time to get into the ring. I mean, just uh, and it's, and it's time. And I was stressed out, you know. I said, God, you know, God, GD, Dad, God, man, you know, we gotta let's go. And he looks at me like he's gonna kill me, and, and like you know, I'm Lex Luger. Uh, they can wait. You're not over, pal. If you're Hulk Hogan, they can wait. You're not Hulk Hogan. So anyway, uh, then they go do their DQ and it sucked and it's just, it was sad. Rick stayed over in spite of booking, to be honest with you. 
Let's talk about, you know, the booking, because that's certainly what everybody's talking about when they think of this era of WCW. Meltzer would report that uh, word has it the NWA will officially be announcing the new booker towards the end of this month. No definite date for the announcement, but many expect it as soon as May 20th in Atlanta or May 22nd when the NWA does its first post-pay-per-view television taping in Ozark, Alabama. Speculation is running rampant as to who the new booker will be, and according to one source within the company, the job was offered to Jim Crockett, who turned it down. Bill Watts was flown in during the middle of this past week and had a meeting and or meetings with Jim Hurd, and apparently there were plenty of things that needed to be ironed out. Apparently Watts wanted more control over the company than the company wanted to give him, and the sides couldn't agree on a money figure, but Watts is apparently still the frontrunner for the position. Heard apparently flew to Texas later in the week to meet with Jerry Jarrett. No word what came out of that meeting, and Jerry Lawler's name has also been bandied about, and there's a lot of talk amongst the wrestlers over the weekend that the leading candidate is Dusty Rhodes. Supposedly, Rhodes is denying to anyone that asks if he's even interested in the job, and um, everybody's talking about every name in wrestling, including Greg Gagne, which Meltzer would say sounds like a real long shot at best. And he even summarizes by saying there's good and bad in every choice. Uh, regarding Watts, there's definitely both. There's a lot of people within the promotion, both in the office and wrestlers, who think Watts will give the promotion badly needed stability. The choice, if made at the onset, would probably be popular to most, even though Watts' name is certainly controversial within the business. So that's Meltzer's take we know the job's going to wind up being with Ole Anderson. What can you tell us about Jim Crockett being offered the job? I didn't know that until I did my research for this. And how close was Bill Watts to coming in here in 1990? I, don't, I, think, uh, I think Jimmy Crockett uh, had been, was totally burned out. And I don't think he wanted to babysit anymore. And he also could see from his experience uh, in his, as a, you know, a guy that's been in the business all his life, that this is not going to be a real easy fix, especially with upper management not changing. Uh, as long as the Bill Shaws of the world and, and the incompetence of the whoever the head on the VP of the division was at that particular time, there are a lot of issues that need to be fixed, a lot of bridges to be repaired. And Jimmy just didn't feel up doing it. That's my take. Uh, Cowboy, I never knew Cowboy even came out for an interview. I had no idea that which which kind of shoots down the. You know, JR knew every move Watts was going to make and all this stuff, you know, his, his mentor. And, and, you know, I get burned by Cowboy being there to begin with. Uh, then I'm, you know, I, I didn't even, I wasn't that tight. I say it that way. I love the guy. I still love him. But we haven't been talking to each other. He didn't like wrestling. He got off of it. I was, I love wrestling. I could get enough of it. So, uh, but I thought it'd be, a, I thought Dusty would, would probably be in the hunt for that pretty strongly. I know Heard, like Greg Gagne. And if Hurd had been able to make that decision on his own, completely autonomous uh, and and not having to consult anybody, I think he would have hired Greg Gagne, uh, which would have been interesting. So, uh, uh, you know, the but Ole was a surprise. Ole was a local. Ole had been the round, in and around wrestling for TVS and, uh, forever. You know, he had, and he had some glory years. He had some good years where he did well. But it, the, the business had kind of pass Ole by, not as much as the fundamentals, because his fundamental soundness was amazing. But every, Conrad, every generation of talents that come along, whether it, no matter the field of competition, 
no matter the, the stage of performance, you had to manage them in some sort of relation to how they were raised. And generations are raised differently. You know, if you go to a great steakhouse, like we had in Vegas, thanks, thanks for, for dinner, by the way, you, you get professional servers that really are good. But the older they are, these old, these old historic steakhouses, those guys are pros. They're the best, man. You know, uh, so that's kind of where I think Ole's deal. Ole had great fundamental skills and logic, but he didn't know how to handle, he didn't know how to communicate well with today's talent. And you can't, you can't jerk them back into the, the past. That's, they can't go there. They don't have that gear. You gotta move up to the future with them and get, you know, and then manage. It doesn't work the other way around. In the territory days, we could threaten somebody or, you know, everything was no contracts. In the door, out the door, whatever. Might have been a little different deal, but in this, in that day and age, it was a different ball game. And Ole didn't communicate well with a lot of the talents. Some of them just didn't like him. Some of them were intimidated by him. Some of them didn't trust him. And and uh, he was very outspoken. The one thing good about Ole, you never knew, you never had to wonder, wonder how he stood on an issue, because he was very willing to tell you, very verbosely and aggressively. Let's talk about one of the rumors that make the Observer around this time. They would write, there's talk that Vince McMahon and Titan Sports are interested in the NWA. And, of course, this would have been the final step in Vince's ultimate goal of controlling wrestling in North America. And supposedly he's trying to make an offer, but uh, Turner allegedly has near no interest in selling. And even if he were to sell... Um, many folks in the office believe he would never sell to McMahon because doing so would be an admission of defeat. And I guess somewhere along the way, back in 1984, Ted Turner actually tried to buy the WWF from Vince McMahon. And since he's owned WCW here for these 18 months, they've yet to turn a profit. Some people are theorizing that WCW is losing a million dollars a month. Other folks would say that's an exaggeration, but they're still probably losing around $5 million a year. When you first heard the rumor here in 90, hey, Vince might be interested, uh, how does that strike you? Are you nervous about your own employment? Do you think there's any shot of that happening, or is it just boys being boys? I kind of thought uh, it was good news, you know, because you get out of a insane asylum, and at that time, you know, McMahon was the, it was a was everything he was doing was seemingly turning to gold in a, in a, in a large way. He was his fashion was big and you know just he had great ideas and he had great vision for the product. Uh, you know he had he had uh, designs of getting on network television and and crossing over to a mainstream audience. All those things are great for our business. So I thought, well, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is that you know I hope I keep my job if that happens, but I, and I think that I will. Uh, but uh, at least we have, a, we would have a singular direction with one voice as a decision maker. And that was never, ever the case in my time at WCW. Never. Uh, too many voices, too many decision makers, too many cutthroats, too many backstabbing. It was, it was almost embarrassing, uh, how we conducted ourselves in that, the management in that era. The booking committee was a joke. Not the people on it. We have some brilliant minds, but I don't know how many people you need to grill a steak. Right. Uh, you know, too many cooks. So uh, I thought, well, that not, might not, not be a bad deal. At least we have some direction and some structure. And God knows we needed the structure there that we didn't have. 
One of the things that I've found most fascinating about this era of WCW is we're about to enter into a, a bit of a weird time where they've always presented themselves as the NWA, but now the actual NWA doesn't really like that classification and thinks that they'd be better suited on their own. So we're going to fully embrace a name change to World Championship Wrestling and WCW. How did this get so murky where it's you bought Jim Crockett promotions, but we refer to it as the NWA, even though it's not really. Uh, what do you remember about all of this? Well, I don't think, Cro- I don't think Crockett was the NWA either. Uh, Crockett was, you know, the JCP, Jim Crockett Promotions, a member of the NWA. And even though he was a, a, the most powerful member by that time, uh, most powerful member of the, of, the, of the alliance, but, you know, he didn't ever own the name. So that became problematic in the intellectual property issues and gave, gave the lawyers another reason to leech their way into more money uh, and uh, cause, uh, cause problems. So uh, I, I don't, I think, I, it was, to me, it was almost inevitable. I don't know why they would use it if they didn't own it. Again, it's not weird. thinking. Yeah, the whole thing's weird to me. Uh, but so is the idea of making a big deal out of signing Eligante. Meltzer would report that supposedly Ted Turner himself is going to personally attend a WCW press conference on Thursday to announce the signing of the world's largest athlete, Eligante. And uh, Meltzer thinks that he'll make his first appearance at the pay-per-view and debut at either the Clash or the July 7th pay-per-view show. Uh, I first saw Eligante that I remember in this Connie Chung piece for CBS. This is still on YouTube somewhere. But they're really explaining sort of the behind the scenes of professional wrestling. And there is even a little bit of a feature uh, with Eligante. What can you tell us about the Connie Chung show, the signing of Eligante, and why Ted was so hot for it? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I've always been amazed that uh, Connie Chung married Maury Povich. That's always been a shocker to me. How the hell did that happen? Uh, sorry, Maury Povich. Murray is David Letterman is calling Murray Povich. Uh, Connie Chung uh, was so respected, one of the one of the one of the big stars in news, TV news. Uh, but we were under the impression that the piece might have taken a little different direction and not gone into so much depth. It was like uh, talking. Uh, it's like some of the shows on today, the reality, more reality-based wrestling stuff that people do features outside the, the basic shows. Uh, but Eligante. George is the name. Uh, George uh, was a, uh, I think George Gonzalez. Uh, I think uh, El, uh, George was a basketball player. We saw him at the CNN Center. He was there uh, doing a tryout, I believe, for the Hawks. And that made a lot of the that made headlines in Atlanta because, you know, he was 7'6", seven, six, seven, six. pretty close to legit 7'6", uh, I believe. So, uh, but he came over. He's a former, you know, Olympic team guy. Uh, but he, he was slow, and, and uh, that, he, they, he didn't last long in the, in the in the Hawks camp. He just had the foot speed, the agility. But when he was standing in the low block, or he was uh, getting ready for the tip off, he was impressive son of a gun. And he was he was a big man, and you know, it wasn't one of those fake height deals where he's only six he's six nine. They say he's seven two. Uh, so that was the. I think. Uh, I think, quite frankly, Ted thought he'd found his own Andre. Mm. And, and I think he got, he's, I got my own Andre. I got my, and my Andre's bigger than your Andre. 
and my Andre is younger than your Andre, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's, I would think that could be a mindset there. So, uh, but George is a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, you know, the sad part about him, I remember, uh, he, he, uh, when we had him in WWE, he, uh, we put, uh, Harvey Whippleman with him, Bruno Lauer, who's invaluable to that company. I, I guess he's still there. Uh, and he, he was, he babysat him. He drove him, got him food, checked him in the hotels, took care of him. And he needed that. Uh, but he was a sweetheart of a guy. He just, he had no aptitude for the business. I remember Herd got on my ass and said, you gotta, you gotta teach Ellie Gatte how to do a promo. And I said, okay, okay. And I said, how long do I have to do that? You know, I was thinking like maybe four years, <laughs> like four days, uh, basically. So I remember talking to him and coaching him up. And I said, okay, here's the deal. You're gonna, Ric Flair's our top villain. And uh, he's our, the most famous guy we got. He's, he's a bad guy. And, and uh, you don't like him. Because he cheats to win. Are you following me, George? Okay. Good. So tell me what you'd say to Ric Flair. He would say, Ric Flair, I kill you. <laughs> then he stop. Okay, George, give me something else. Hurry, come on. What do you think about? Ric Flair, it's a lot louder. Ric Flair, I kill you. George, you're not going to murder anybody, okay? You scared little kids. He got so goddamn confused. It's it horrible. He'd never watched wrestling. He'd never been around it. He was a completely brand new spank. didn't have a damn clue about it. He didn't know what a heel was or babyface was or a return or a Broadway or a collar elbow tie-up. Nothing. Nothing. The, the thing that, I know the things I can remember most about George other than his good heart. God bless, he died broke. Uh, and I remember Harvey sending money toward the end, just out of his own pocket. Shows us where Harvey Whippleman is, a good man. Of course, George did save his money, he had his big family he took care of. So, uh, he, 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 he died, I think of diabetes or something, too, way too early. Nice man. I remember he liked to dance. And the son bitch was a pretty good dancer. Uh, and he liked Missy. But I don't think Missy reciprocated in that regard. Well, let's talk a little bit about the elegante thing i mean is this you know it's just passed down hey this is what ted wants we got to get it over does anybody ever raise their hand and say uh hey this is the shit so we can't do this no no uh, uh and when they talk amongst themselves as they say sure considerably uh that dialogue but to, to confront ted nope uh nothing and you know maybe heard heard or something like that but you know the deal was the same thing with RoboCop. The, the orders, the marching orders came down from a top, from a top. So there wasn't any, let's have a meeting and talk, we're going to really do it. No, we're going to do it. And the same thing with George. You're going to use him. And we're going to see if we can't get him over. And I think that the challenge was, the way I looked at it was, you got a lot of brain power in this uh, booking committee and, and the creative side. We should be able to make this guy a little better. Find out the two or three things he could do well and just do that. So, uh, but there was no, no, no questioning Ted because Ted had, Ted had made an emotional investment in Eligante after he saw it because Ted owned the Hawks, as you, you know. He, he also owned the, the basketball team. So, uh, he, he, he had, he was invested in this deal and it's a personal thing for him. And, and he also showed us, which I thought was the most valuable thing to not bitch about it of all to him that he's trying to help us. Now, was, was his help a good help? Not, it didn't work out that way. 
but he, at least he was thinking of, of attractions and, and increasing the talent budget to get some players here that might make a difference. Well, let's get to the show. Capital Combat, uh, it's uh, 7,500 fans. It's a sellout, $98,000 house. Your first match is the Road Warriors teaming up with Norman, taking on Cactus Jack Manson, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Kevin Sullivan. Uh, JR, you saw this match for the first time in a long time this week. What did you think? Well, it wasn't bad. You know, uh, I was I always like watching the talents. You know, the, you know uh, Hawk's gone, Norman's gone. Bam Bam's gone. I saw Kevin Sullivan not too long ago. Uh, Mick Foley, who was Cactus Jack Manson, obviously. Uh, I remember when he came back to WCW, he said, can you not use Manson? I said, yeah, well, we'll drop that. He just became Cactus Jack. Makes her a better t-shirt. Uh, I, I was high on uh, Mike Shaw because of the way he was booked in Calgary. He worked as a heel in Calgary, kind of an Arab-type playoff thing, mock and sing, uh, some kind of deal that Arab did the deal. But he was a a quote-unquote foreigner, evil foreigner or convert or whatever. He was a real good heel there. And we did a great, real proper job of screwing his character up when he came to WCW, making Norman the lunatic. Made no sense. That's what, again, that's what creative decided they wanted. And I was, sometimes I also thought, also thought that we had the idea. I was watching tape everywhere, man. Joe Pettacino had his show there on Channel 69 on and that had wrestling on a marathon every Saturday night from all these different territories, you know, six, seven hours of wrestling. And I saw the Calgary tapes. And uh, in addition to, to the colorful Ed Whalen, the play-by-play guy, who would say, we're having a malfunction at the junction. Uh, I think it's for uh, Mario and Elegance of his delivery, a powerful delivery, uh, is that, uh, uh, you know, this guy was a hell of a heel. So we bring him in make him a goddamn idiot. Norman the Lunatic. And I don't even know if that's politically, it wouldn't, even, it wouldn't even be, it's not politically correct in today's world, of course, you can't make fun, but I think we screwed him up, and uh, quite honestly, but it wasn't a bad match, it was short, uh, and I think the fans are happy because the the, uh, the baby faces went over, and that's kind of what we're looking for in that deal. A good start, little buzz there, a lot of star power, because when you hear the Road Warrior music, you you're get that Road Warrior pop, that's a good way to get started, then about nine minutes later, we're out of there. And the Road Warriors are out of here. This winds up being their last pay-per-view appearance for the NWA before jumping ship to the WWF. They would quit the next month, uh, reportedly over some sort of disagreement with Jim Hurd, and they would sign with Vince McMahon later that same month. When did you realize, hey, this is it for the Warriors? When you hear Hawk and, and, uh, and Animal, to a lesser degree, talk about their pay and how things are bad, uh, for them, and it's going to get worse here, and they're sort of predicting uh, gloom and doom, no pun intended, uh, that's bad enough. But then when they're going to go talk to Herd about solving their issues, he knew that it was over because he didn't solve too many issues like that. So uh, uh, that's kind of, to me, it was a fait accompli. It's going to happen. They're out of here. Uh, you know, they, they were they were all about the cash. And of course, when he got there, you know, to, to make the cash, you got to get a pretty decent creator to go along with it. But they were all about the cash. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Uh, but that was when they when heard was their final, the final stop in the negotiating journey. I knew that we were screwed. I feel like it should be mentioned here. You know, this is the opening match on the pay per view. So 
while we've talked a lot about how Hall of Fame the announced squad was, your opening match is the Road Warriors, Cactus Jack, Bam Bam, Kevin Sullivan. There's a ton of talent here, and the hits keep coming because our next match is Mean Mark, who we know is going to go on to become The Undertaker later this same year. And he's going to get a, a win over Johnny Ace, who, of course, we know is going to be a, a very critical person to WWE in their last 20 years or so. Uh, but here they're wrestling on pay-per-view, and the heart punch, climbing the ropes for the finish, uh, it's a cool deal that you're trying to do here with Mean Mark. What did you think his upside was, and, and what did you think of this match, watching it back for the first time in a long time? I think uh, uh, Mark is so blessed with athletic, natural athleticism. Again, promoters love guys that uh, walk in the airport and turn heads, and him being that big you know, 6'10 guy, around 300 uh he wasn't a Clydesdale he, he was a thoroughbred you know he walked good he's he was healthy then young all that good stuff uh I always believe he is he would have been he would, he would have been the, the champion I thought Mark mean Mark at some point would have been our champion in WCW uh but unfortunately uh the booker didn't agree with me and Ole Anderson told me that, that uh, this guy ain't never, never gonna draw a dime he got no emotion, he got no passion, and uh, so forth and so on. So, uh, you know, I first saw Mark, he was the Punisher in Dallas working for the Von Ericks. Or he might have been working for Jarrett. I'm not sure, somewhere in that era. Uh, probably Jarrett, I think about it. Uh, but uh, he, he, I just thought he had everything. And that we could figure out the, the persona. We didn't figure out the persona, but Vince did. He's still using it. Uh, so... Uh, but Ole didn't like it. Ole said he'd never draw a dime. And so uh, I, his contract was coming up, and Ole, did, Ole wanted to make him a real mediocre offer. And I told Mark that. I said, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not going to get what you want here, just being honest with you. And so there's no sense in pursuing something that's not there. But if you get an opportunity to go to work for McMahon, which I'm sure you do, then I'd jump on that son of a bitch because that makes all the sense in the world. Now, I had no idea that Vince is going to create the Undertaker character, which is a stroke of genius because it's how long has it lasted at, at a top level. Uh, so, uh, but Mark was not, uh, the other talents like Mark, you know, the talents that are on the book committee that, that were there, I uh, liked him. For some reason, he just didn't jive with Ole, but that could be said about a lot of people. Let's keep it going here, and let's talk about the next match. Uh, we've got the Samoan SWAT team getting a win over Captain Mike Rotunda and Tommy Rich. They go over 17 minutes and only gets half a star in the Observer. Uh, Meltzer says the work itself is solid, and, and Rich has got himself in a better shape, but the match is just too long for these guys. This does feel sort of out of place here. I didn't enjoy the match watching it back. What do you think? Well, what they're doing booking-wise is splitting the tag. So you got the, the big tag with the Road Warriors as the as key players in the opening match. You get everything started well. Then you go to a single, which is primarily booked to focus on and, and showcase me and Mark, uh, certainly with Johnny Ace. Uh, but we, there was no issue with the Samoan SWAT team. Really a good team as far as uh, big, badass guys, athletic. You know, also those Samoan guys, even on the football field, man, you know, you got you got a nice uh, – Idle boy playing quarterback for your roll tide. Uh, they're special. They're they're very athletic, and you look at their bone structure. The one thing I've always said about you look at their look at their arms. Their wrists are like four inches wide. They're just have their big bone structure, 
And uh, so these guys were physical. I, I loved them. But there was no story there. And to be honest, you know, Captain Mike and uh, Tommy Rich, well, that's, just, that's one of those uh, left-handed tag teams, as they call it, the business. There's no tie-in. There's no there's but no rhyme or reason. There's two guys, good, two good guys, but, you know, not nothing there to invest in. So that match, to me, was probably uh, ill-placed on the card, and like maybe it shouldn't have been on the card at all. And it certainly was, going almost 18 minutes was... Uh, was challenging to call 18 minutes of a match that had no story yeah a really long match uh and, and if you think that doesn't make any sense check out the next one it's a hair versus hair match with paul ellering and teddy long i guess we should remind you that these guys are both bald and they're in a huh. hair match and as a result Meltzer gives it negative two and a half stars wow <laughs> who thought of this shit a hair match with guys who don't have hair I want to tell you, as best I recall, the idea started out as a rib because Teddy had a little bit of hair left. He kind of protecting, uh, and uh, he was proud of it. And so, uh, and Ellering had long since had hair. His hair was he's either shaving his head or or it was really thin, you know, a real real tight cut. I think it started out as a, as a as a little bit of a rib on Teddy primarily. And Ole liked to rib Teddy uh, for whatever reasons. But nonetheless, uh, Teddy was very worried about wrestling because he'd never wrestled. Uh, he didn't want to get hurt. He didn't want to look bad. He didn't want to embarrass the business. All the right reasons. And so, uh, but the match went on. And luckily, it was mercifully under two minutes. And uh, I don't even, I think Ellering won the match, won the whatever, the exhibition, whatever it was. It wasn't good, it's what it was. And, you know, I have, I, I have a lot of love, Paul Hellering and uh, Teddy. Teddy's been, I've been around Teddy for years, Paul too. But it wasn't their fault. They should have been booked in it. It's not the talent's fault when you're booked into a match that has no way of being successful. You can't be a hit. And well, it's only two minutes. It's two minutes of shit. That's all. Two minutes of shit. And it wasn't the talent's fault. It was poorly booked. Uh, a ha-ha choke, inside rib, and uh, which I can kind of identify with, my illustrious in-ring career, uh, and I, it just made no sense. So, uh, but I felt bad for Teddy and Paul. They, they, neither one were prepared to have to do this, and I don't know why even we even had it. To be honest with you, again, crazy booking, no rhyme, no reason, no direction. Too many cooks in there uh, making that soup. Without question. The next match, though, is a great match. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. Meltzer did, too. We gave it three and three-quarter stars. You've got two of the best tag teams around. The Midnight Express, and they're going to be taking on Tom Zink and Brian Pillman. The Express get the win here and win the United States Tag Team Championships. Uh, Jim Cornette is placed in a cage at ringside. And, uh, of course, we know what that's going to set up. What do you think of the match? Uh, Pillman is... Um, quote, juice the hard way from the forehead, which I understand wasn't mentioned nor evident to home viewers. Uh, but lots of hot moves from both guys. How great was the Midnight Express here in 1990? I can't believe that there was significant blood that we would not have mentioned it, but apparently uh, that was a report from uh, the Observer. Uh, e either that or we were told not to mention it, which could have been, or it just was so, uh, wasn't there a shot. I can't make up stuff if it's not on the monitor. 
you can't just go to ministry yourself without telling a story. You got to have the visual to tell the story. But nonetheless, they had a hell of a good match. You know, it's hard to. I don't recall ever uh, a Cornette-led Midnight Express match uh, in an event like a pay-per-view or a clash that wasn't uh, damn good. Damn good. Main event level. And, you know, that's when tag teams had had some symmetry. That's when their personalities were uh, in place. And it was just a... Uh, they delivered. And, then of course, you had the, the, the fireball Paul Brian Tillman, uh, who was like a meteor. He's, he's going to... He's going to flash through the sky, and of course, he burned out long before he's due. Uh, and uh, I think the, and Tom Zink was, that helped Tom Zink get some credibility because, uh, you know, Midnight had a way of taking care of guys and making and embellishing what they were. So, probably one of the better matches on the show. This, again, overlooked, not even thought of because of Robocop. Yeah, the uh, hot tag to Tom Zink here is the biggest pop live of the entire night. And um, Zink's got a lot of hot moves here. He's kicking out of the rocket launcher. And um, then he takes a enziguri from Stan Lane and Eaton cradles him for the win. And then afterwards is the big RoboCop angle. Sting comes out. The horsemen come from the side, which is Sid Vicious, Arn, and Ole. And they cut Sting off at the pass, throw him into the cage. Courtnett was in. And then Robo, sl- this is directly from the Observer, RoboCop slowly clanked out, opened up the bars of the cage, and pulled the door off its hinges and that was the last we saw of him the entire show. RoboCop meant nothing to the show. In fact, they were giving out RoboCop posters to everyone who came in the building, and most people wouldn't even take them. With all those RoboCop posters given out, I didn't notice one, and I mean one, held up during the entire show. Sting got a big pop coming out, and the horsemen were out immediately, and the entire angle just took a few seconds, and it was over. The only comment from kids around me were, Boy, RoboCop is too small. For the few seconds it lasted, people were into it. Nobody booed. It didn't hurt the show one iota. But I can't say it helped the show, but it became clear to me that the wrestling promotion itself had decided or realized that RoboCop wasn't what they wanted to be selling, so they made it as painless as possible. Um, what do you think of Dave's assessment here of the way RoboCop was used? Pretty accurate. There's no way you could make it good. It's, you're booking a match that can't be good. So you're either doing it as a cruel rib, or we'll show you, or whatever. It could, it, see, the, the, the Turner Home Entertainment did not demand, they didn't lay out that storyline. They didn't lay out the match. That was up to the wrestling people. You wrestling people shouldn't be able to make this thing work. So uh, that's kind of the that's kind of the, the situation there. But Conrad, it, it couldn't be, it couldn't work. That's like if you want to have a, uh, a podcast with Helen Keller. Probably ain't going to work. So that's kind of how I looked at that, man. It's just, it was, it was, we just had to figure out a way to get through it. And it had all kinds of whistles and bells and smoke and mirrors and all that stuff. Uh, you know, just to, to take your eye off what you came to see. And that was a wrestling match. Notwithstanding a cage match, which we totally bastardized on that one night. Let's talk about the next segment here. It's the Junkyard Dog, or as Dave Meltzer called him, the Junk Food Dog. Cornette comes out and says it's hard to hear live, but when Cornette asked Dog where he'd been, Dog gave an address, and Cornette freaked out that it was his mother's house, and that got a big pop. People didn't boo Junkyard Dog, but a lot of people were sort of shaking their heads. Uh, Meltzer would summarize that 
Uh, Ole Anderson wants a black baby face, and his first choice was Tony Atlas, but JYD winds up getting the nod. Uh, the NWA tried to do this a year before. It didn't really work out. Now they're trying it again here. What do you think of the uh, insertion of JYD into a storyline here with Jim Cornette, and were his better days at this point behind him? Absolutely, the better days were behind him. I, uh, I was embarrassed for Sylvester Ritter, who was at JYD. Uh, you know, the line of the night was, you know, you know that Cornette's line. You know, his Cornette set that up. He's brilliant. Uh, but I, I felt the ship had long since sailed for JYD. And, uh, you know, he's, it's so, it's so funny. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how uh, Cowboy Bill Watts wanted to name Ahmed Johnson Buck Johnson. And he, you know, the whole mentality and the whole mindset of some of those old ex-wrestler Caucasian promoters and bookers and how they perceive black men. Now, the, and Cowboy will tell you today, he loved Ernie Ladd like a brother, but he, he was also caught up in the precedence of pro wrestling booking where, you you know, you'd only have a certain small number of, of, uh, of, of ethnic uh, competitors, especially African-American competitors. Everybody could always have their obligatory uh, uh, Japanese villain. You know, uh, even though the, the guys might be born in Hawaii or something, but nonetheless, that's always stereotypical. We always had a, 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 a evil German for many years. But Sylvester, trying to recreate Sylvester, what he used to look like, he didn't train anymore. You know, he had some drug and alcohol issues. Uh, he had fallen from the mountaintop, had made so much money, he didn't save any of it. So it was sad. And, you know, we had to, when he went to the Hall of Fame, the WWF, we had to, we had to locate his daughter, and that was not easy. And and there were one of the things I was I was involved in that negotiation, uh, you know, telling her that look, come to the Hall of Fame and help honor your father. Uh, you'll, he's going to get an honorarium which you'll receive, but you'll also be able to uh, and give WWE credit for this. You'll also be able to uh, get his royalty checks, big or small. Money coming in that you wouldn't have had, mailbox money. So, uh, it was, it was a disappointment because I saw JYD in his heyday when he looked like a, a you know, uh, ebony Greek god. And I just, it was just sad. And he just, and the irony of that whole statement about the junk food dog, that was his nickname to me, uh, back, back in the Mid South days. Actually, Ernie Ladd gave me the nickname of junk food dog, uh, as, and, and, and talked about Sylvester. You know, Bill, your announcer's junk food dog. He had two hot dogs yesterday, or whatever. You know, Ernie was always having some fun with that, but, uh, that's, I, that was my uh, nickname. So from Ernie to, Ernie to me, but I feel bad for Sylvester. It's sad to see when you, when you wonder, I don't think he really knew it was over. If he did, he didn't want to admit it. But he quit training and he, hell, he was, he was huge. He was way over 300 pounds. Way over. Just didn't look like the same guy. Sad. Really sad. The next match here is an interesting match. It's the Rock and Roll Express. They get a win over the Freebirds in a corporal punishment match. It goes nearly 19 minutes. Meltzer says he was told the corporal punishment match was Jim Hurd's idea, and it's essentially a new name for what was known in Texas as a country whipping match, where all four guys come in with a leather belt that they're supposed to whip each other until they look like zebras. And uh, Meltzer would write, and I found this hilarious, then a certain individual who will go nameless, but his namesake was a famous McCowboy, was told to buy whips for the match. Instead of buying leather belts, he went to a sex shop and bought a cat of nine tails. 
Well, you certainly can't whip someone with that for nine, 20 minutes either. So they tied the whips to the ropes and used them two or three brief, brief flurries during the match. And aside from those brief flurries, it was just a regular match. Uh, two and three-quarter stars. What do you think of the match? And what can you tell us about this uh, sex shop visit for the whips? I try to, I try to think who that was uh, that went to the... Uh shop and, and got a cat, of, a cat of nine tails because the tradition is the, you're right the match is simply a, a country whipping match and the, you get you know straps or you get the straps at any, any place uh, leather goods are done and so I, I it was just a dressed up deal again you know we can't be we can't use tradition we can't be perceived as old school it's this whole goddamn thing about the wrestling business right now and even some fans well, this old school stuff. Well, it's that old school. Well, he's old school. What the hell does that mean? What does old school mean? Does it mean you're fundamentally sound? Does it mean that you want your wrestling to be somewhat logical? You want it to be where when the guys lock up, that they could actually break an egg or two? Yeah. Physicality like that? Oh, yeah. That's old school. Logic. Now, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, changes being made. But the basic fundamentals that made old school great are as applicable today as they were 30 or 40 years ago. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. So, uh, you know, rock and roll and the Freebirds can't have a bad match, even at that stage of, their, of the game. Uh, I don't know that the you, you, who I don't I can't remember something was that match kind of. I'm not sure that match. Uh, the Freebirds might have had some issues with it. I'm not sure. Uh, but they, they're big at that country whipping stuff. I know when I had a country whipping match with, uh, Jonathan Coachman in Chicago one time on Raw, that one of my, one of the guys helping me through it to give me, you know, pointers was Michael Hayes on the country whipping side. And basically you just, you just grit your teeth and hit, get, and hit somebody as hard as you can and they hit you as hard as they can and you hope you get through it without getting hit in the eyes or something. Uh, but it wasn't a bad match. It wasn't a bad match. But, uh, you look back at it. Look at the look at this card again. You talked about this early card very astutely. These are two Hall of Fame teams. Right. I mean, this is a lot of talent here in this, in this damn match. And think of how good it would have been if it would just been uh, uh, a match. We we went. We everybody did the same thing. Well, we got the well, three birds and the and the rock and roll going to work. Okay. Well, what are we going to do with it? What do you mean? They're going to they're going to have a hour time limit. They're going to go about thirty. And we'll get the baby faces over, or get the heels over. That's it. Well, well we have a stipulation. Why? I guess you, you're bored with wrestling. If you're bored with wrestling, then you need a stipulation. If the match has evolved into something that where it finally uh, has to have this stipulation to get settled, another deal. I don't see that happening on that match. But uh, those guys pulled it off. Again, like I said, uh, about midnight. Midnight, having never had a bad match on pay-per-view that I ever saw. Rock and roll never had a bad match in a big match environment. And my God, the Freebirds had them all, but, uh, same thing. So they all had that in common. Big match feel. But, uh, I didn't know if they needed the stipulation, but it was what it was. And, and, you know, uh, some of the fans liked it because they could see that it was real. It was real because you can't work, uh, a strap hit very easily. A strike with a strap is hard to work. And I could tell you, they hurt. And it's just, and when you got resting stuff on, uh, you know, the bare skin is exposed. Uh, that's a bitch. Yeah, it's uh, it's an old school Southern match, and there's an old school Southern talent there. Somebody who would become synonymous with Smoky Mountain, and of course was a legend in Knoxville. Doug Furness is here. 
He's going to do an interview, and see, seems a little out of place. Uh, Meltzer would write, he was only even brought here because they weren't sure if Tom Zink would be able to wrestle. So he is the backup plan. What can you tell us about this Doug Furness spot here on the show? Uh, Ill-placed. Uh, and I like Doug. I, Doug grew up uh, in Oklahoma, in northeast Oklahoma, near where I did. We didn't know each other growing up because of our age difference. Uh, and I always got a kick. Doug and his brother both went to Tennessee to play football uh, for Coach Phil Fulmer. And uh, Doug, of course, is an amazing power lifter. Both those guys uh, were really, really uh, great athletes. And the irony of that is that they, they grew up in a town of Commerce, Oklahoma. And I said, one thing about you, Doug, you'll never be the most famous athlete to come out of Commerce. That's a, Commerce is a little town like I grew up in Westville, Oklahoma. Probably a 1,000 population, somewhere in that neighborhood, give or take 100 or so. And I said, you'll never be the most famous athlete to come out of Commerce. And he said, you're right about that because that's Mickey Mantle's hometown. So uh, they, they came from good, a good area and good kids, uh, junior college football, All-Americans. Cordette loved him. I thought he was a great hand as well. Uh, we probably shouldn't have put him on the TV show. We could have put him in the gym doing videos, vignettes, and showing that power he had, his agility. He's fast. He, everything. He was a, he's a great athlete. Doug, really, really a great athlete. But we put him out there to do the one thing he didn't do well, talk. Yeah, it is um, a little out of place. Next up, though, it's a fun match. It goes nearly 20 minutes. Doom is going to win the NWA tag titles from the Steiner Brothers. Uh, this is probably the best era for Doom. I really enjoyed this version of Doom. Uh, the Steiners, of course, are arguably the best team in wrestling at this point in the nation. Uh, three and a half stars. Uh, good stuff here, especially since we're starting to see the Frankensteiner, uh, which was way ahead of its time. Uh, what did you think of this match, watching it back after all this time? I love the chemistry between the two teams. Uh, Steiners and Doom, uh, Ron Simmons and Butch Reed had, all, all those guys uh, were very mentally and physically tough. Uh, they're, they worked very snug. Uh, and so the physicality that we saw in those matches were pretty eye-opening. But I think the fact that they did respect each other uh, made everything click uh, because normally – on a lot of teams, if they're wrestling the Steiners, that team, the opponents are a little intimidated. Same thing with uh, Butch and Ron, Doom, uh, can be intimidating because of their style. And, and they, they take no quarters. They don't ask for any forgiveness. They're going to come at you uh, in, the, in, the, in the framework of a pro wrestling match. So uh, I, I like that. You know, They were not going to be intimidated. Neither team was intimidated by the other, which made their match really be smoother, more giving, uh, you know, we sometimes see a great match on TV. It's like, you know, we, the, the Cody and Dusty last, or Dustin last week in, in, in Vegas. They shared selling. They, you know, Dustin was bleeding. He's selling. He's, he was unselfish. And then Cody was unselfish and sold for his brother. Well, these, he found that these two teams with each other sold really, really well. And then you find them wrestling some other teams that might have a complaint, whisper a complaint, like they didn't give us anything. They ate us up or, you know, whatever. Uh, so I, I like that matchup. I always like that chemistry of those guys. And, and uh, I thought that Doom was one of the better teams that we had at the WCW to, to put them together, Ron and, and, uh, and Butch. Uh, but you're right about the one thing, Conrad. In that era, you really had to look long and hard to find a better tag team than the Steiners. The uh, main event is what people still talk about. You know, should they have 
kept the title on Flair? Should they have put it on Luger? Instead, it's a cage match, and they've positioned Ric Flair as the underdog, saying that Lex Luger has the upper hand and he's the favorite. I guess we're ignoring the fact that Flair won two world titles in cage matches at this point. They're going to go 17 minutes and 21 seconds, and surprise, in a cage match, it's a DQ for outside interference, which God. is supposed to be the reason that you have a cage match. Uh, Luger is is in bad shape here. He's got a staph infection uh, as a result of uh, some sort of arthroscopic surgery that he's had, so he's not feeling good here. Meltzer would call him less than 100%. In fact, probably closer to 50%. He's supposed to juice a gusher here, but because of the staph infection, that can't be the case. So Flair is bleeding like a stuck pig here. There, Here comes the interference, the Oles, the Arns, the Sids. Eventually, Sting chases the heels away. Elegante is there. And then once the cage is magically lifted, Barry Windham comes to ringside. He gets in the ring as Luger had Flair in the torture rack. And there's your DQ. Um, sort of an interesting finish, I guess. It feels a little bit like a ripoff to the fans who were maybe looking for a clean one. And it feels like the almost identical finish to the most recent pay-per-views on all the house show loops. Uh, when did you know the creative for the finish here of the main event sucked? And do you think, in hindsight, it hurt your future pay-per-view business? Well, I think it was a very poor decision. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I think that you know Rick should have won that match. Uh, we killed the cage, uh, as you as you indicated, Conrad. That you know uh, there was precedent where Flair had had earned great success in some cage matches that we could have played on. Uh, we could have made Luger the underdog. Uh, then when Flair got the color, then here comes the underdog who's beaten up. And he's got surgery scheduled. He's I guess doctor's orders here and all those good things. It really made Lex the 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 underdog, even though he's six five and two seventy five, and Rick was six feet and two thirty, uh, two forty something like that. Uh, you know, bigger the baby face when the baby face is the bigger guy in the match. You got that's got to be addressed commentary and the way the match is structured, uh, without a doubt. Uh, just not just not realistic. Why would you want a your smaller heel just wiping the floor of the of the bigger bigger baby face? There's got to be a story behind that that makes makes sense. So uh, I, I thought it was a horrible idea. Uh, I didn't have any. I didn't know why. Why are we? You know, you can say, well, here's what happened. Well, we're, Lex is going to have all these built-in uh, opponents when he's when he, when he gets it strapped. Uh, you know, and I said, well, that's a great idea if you're going to actually uh, utilize long-term planning. But we don't do that here. We book week to week. And, and, and if somebody comes or goes to the booking committee, then the whole the philosophy could easily change. So I, I thought it was a bad idea, Conrad. I, I don't think it did the paper you did us any favors. I don't think we paid off what we uh, what we advertised. And uh, it would have been so much better if Rick could have won. And they, look, there could have been distractions and all that stuff, but to have physicality in the cage and the cage raised and all that stuff was in, in, insanity. And then you have so many moving parts. And some of those moving parts are rather large, uh, i.e. Eligante, uh, and he didn't know where to stand, so to speak. So it was just a ill-fated. We're lucky we got off the air as 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 we did. Flair's blood gave us some drama. Uh, all those extra bodies running around gave us some drama. Uh, the introduction of Eligante at seven feet six or whatever he was was uh, you know mentionable, and it's supposed to be big. Well, that's what we tried to put it that way, but you know it just at the end of the day it didn't, didn't pan out. 
Uh, and then, of course, they try to get around the stench of the Tin Man. It wasn't easy. That's what, that's what the name of the show should be, the stench of the Tin Man. Wow. Well, listen, I, uh, I've had fun revisiting this show as a kid. I really enjoyed Capital Combat as an adult. I can understand why it sucked and everyone says it sucked. You watched this show for the first time in a long time. What do you think? You know, I mean, you're obviously looking at it in a vacuum. You're looking at it with the benefit of hindsight. Um, what's your takeaway from this one? Better than I, better than I envisioned. When you told me we were going to do this show about, uh, 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 you said Capital Combat. I think, wait a minute. Is that the RoboCop show? That's the RoboCop show, Conrad? Mm-hmm. I think, oh, shit. Uh, and then I, after I saw it again and, and read about it more, we had a who's who of talent on that card, a lot of Hall of Famers. We had too many great talents, too many Hall of Fame level people to not have had a better show if the booking had been somewhat logical and objective, not trying to protect everybody. I'd never have understood this. i tell you when this all started, the protecting wrestlers, when the wrestlers became bookers. When, when, when wrestlers became territory owners or wrestlers became bookers, you found the finishes and that their territory changed because they all felt that I can't lose. Or if I do lose, it's got to be the, the, you know, the 13th Cavalry's got to take me down. It, it just, it, it, the trends all change, and hopefully they'll change back now. Uh, I think AEW is going to demonstrate that, that we're going to have winners and losers, and it matters. Just like the old days of the territory, where, you, where your talents were forced to be able to be, work, to be good enough skilled that they could lose without it uh, mentally or physically destroying their, their, their personas. I think we're on our way back to that there, but... Uh, when I look back at this card, the matches are good. The matches are better than I remembered because what I remembered primarily, Conrad, was the RoboCop uh, smelly piece of business. That's all. But I thought it was better. And I look back at the, the talent roster, and golly, we had some good talents that went on to do great things. I mean, big time. Made a lot of money. But why we could get that team to play for us it was just a, it was amazing. And just no, no long-term planning, just no, no organization. I think there was a lot of uh, there was a lack of objectivity. It just was a sad thing for that many good talents to not be able to make, to maximize their own potential. Well, and we hope that you are enjoying us maximizing our potential here on Grilling Jr. We appreciate you sticking with us. We hope that you enjoyed our episode last week about Owen Hart, and you recommend that show and this one about RoboCop and WCW to a friend or family member. And we'll be back next Thursday at 6 a.m. Don't miss us. Uh, every Thursday morning on your ride to work, good old JR is going to be reliving some of the great stories from professional wrestling. And you can keep up with all things on our show by following us on Twitter, at JR Grilling. That's at JR Grilling on Twitter. And uh, until next time, he's Jim Ross. I'm Conrad Thompson, and we're out of time. See you next week right here on Grilling JR. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.